As we come to the next section of our story, what is commonly known as the plagues of Egypt, what we really have is a conflict between the deities. Egyptians against Israel's. The false against the true. The serpent against the seed. Pharaoh against Yahweh. And it is a mismatch. Battles against the Lord are always a mismatch. Amen, church? So this isn't just going to be a frog or two. A few bugs, little red water, a few hailstones, few people with boils or a cloudy day. No, these are going to be horrific signs of God's judgment and sovereign power. God was going to make sure that the people knew who was doing this and that He alone is God. Now we can honestly say that the battle has already begun. Brother James talked last week about Aaron's snake staff swallowing up the Egyptian magician snakes. The, the battle has already really begun. God is already beginning to prove himself to be the one true living God. And this conflict is going to continue in Exodus chapter 7 verse 14 through Exodus 10 29. I am not going to read all three and a half chapters today. I will as we get to the individual plagues. I will up on the screen put what the plague is, put what the text is, and then I will walk through the, the, the text with us and point out a few things that I think are important. But before we get into looking at the individual plagues, I want to make the case that the word plague is not really a good word to use for it. First of all, the Bible never refers to any of these as a plague. It really can be misleading and not appropriate to, to uh, label these astonishing events that way. Now, the term plague began to get used in the 16th century for these miraculous events. And in the 16th century, the word plague meant something more than what it does today. It really meant in the 16th century a strike or to blow. And so when this word began to get used, they were saying that the Lord has struck or landed a blow against Egypt and their gods. So when they used the term plague, what they were saying is God has struck a blow with these different miraculous events. Now, when we use the word plague today, that's not usually how we use it. Today, we kind of mean an infectious disease that is caused by pests or caused by insects. So this really doesn't describe what it is we're going to be looking at today. So we, we, we get closer when we use the term strike or to blow. These, these nine blows that we're going to be looking at today. These nine strikes against the Egyptian gods and their deities. But when we look closer, we actually get the perfect description of what these are. It was in the text last week in Exodus chapter 7 verse 3. 
Here's what God says. I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Really, signs and wonders is the best description of these. They're not, not, they're not nine plagues that we're going to be looking at today. They're nine signs and wonders. And really, we've already seen signs and wonders. These miraculous actions in Egypt by God. Now, I want to give you a fourfold objective to the signs and wonders of God. When God does signs and wonders, there's really a fourfold objective to these. And I've got these up on the screen. I think they're important. Number one, when God does a sign and wonder, they point to something greater than themselves. We cannot simply look at the sign and the wonder and think that that is where it should stop. A sign and a wonder is always supposed to point to something greater than the sign or the wonder, right? The sign and the wonder is not the thing itself, right? It's like we say today, when, when God does a miracle, it's not the miracle itself that is wonderful. It is the God who does the miracle that is wonderful, So when God does a sign and a wonder, the sign and the wonder is not what is spectacular. What's spectacular is the God who does it. And that brings me to point number two. Point number two is that they manifest the glory of God. When the Lord does a sign and wonder, it is to point to his glory. That's what we're supposed to see. How glorious this God is that can do this sign and wonder. Can't just stop the sign and wonder itself. Number three, they cause belief in the people of God. When God does signs and wonders, it is there to give faith, to strengthen the faith of the people of God. Then number four, they reveal a new move of God. When God does, there are these times in history where God does these wonderful signs and wonders. It's like they, they come on the scene in, a, in this powerful, mighty way. And it should tell everyone who are seeing these signs and wonders, God's doing a new thing. And here, certainly, God is doing a new thing with Israel. So we've already dealt with one of these signs and wonders, the Aaron's staff snake incident. By the way, so Lord of the Rings is my favorite um, story outside of the Bible. I mentioned this to um, the teenagers uh, a few weeks ago. Um, you know, Brother James preached a message last week about a battle of wizards. You can't tell me wizards aren't in the Bible. Moses and Aaron, with long robes and staffs in their hand, walk in to battle magicians of Egypt. This is a wizard battle is what this is. We got, we got Moses and Aaron better than Gandalf, but we got Moses and Aaron over here going up against the magicians of Egypt. Only one has true, real power from God. It was a magician battle. We've already seen this. But now what we're going to see is God is going to make it very clear that these nine signs and wonders can only be done by him. And that Egypt and their gods are going to be humiliated. Now, what we're going to see with these nine signs and wonders is that they seem to build in intensity. The the first three are going to strike water and the ground. 
The second are going to strike living flesh with swarms of flies and the death of livestock and human skin covered in boils. And the final three are going to move higher up to the skies where destruction comes with weather and an east wind brings in locusts and the sun is blackened out. So God is going to bring this intensity and it it seems to get worse as we go along. And with this destruction comes the humiliation of the deities that were supposed to govern Egypt. We're going to talk about, I'm going to name some of these Egyptians, gods and goddesses that were supposed to govern Egypt and how God with each of these these signs and wonders is completely humiliating them and removing them from their places of power. So here we go. Exodus chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. The first one is the Nile being turned into blood. Now, Moses has already turned water into blood, and he's done it in front of Israel. We have not really talked about that yet, but he did it in front of Israel to to declare the Lord's sovereignty. But now he's doing it on a much larger scale. But I want you to see something very interesting. In verse 15, the text tells us that Moses was to go to the Nile in the morning as Pharaoh was headed to the Nile as well. So I think the question should be asked, why is Pharaoh headed to the Nile in the morning? From what I have studied and what I've looked at this week, this was probably a daily worship experience for Pharaoh. Pharaoh probably every morning would wake up and go down to the Nile to worship the false gods of the Nile. This was not just a casual stroll for Pharaoh. He wasn't just headed to the Nile to bathe or to see how, how much the water has gone up or gone down. This was daily worship to the Nile and the gods that ruled it. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. There is no Egypt without the Nile. It was responsible for transportation, irrigation, drinking water, food, setting the calendar. So when God strikes the Nile, this was a massive catastrophe. It would be like if our oil supplies was cut off, the stock market collapses, drinking water gets contaminated, and there's no food in the grocery stores. If everything collapsed, In the United States, that would be similar to the Nile being turned into blood. It's really no surprise then that the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as their creator and sustainer. There are at least three deities that were associated with the Nile. Osiris, Nu, and Happy. Not H-A-P-P-Y, H-A-P-I. All of these gods were associated with the Nile. So when the Nile gets turned to blood and the thing that the Nile is supposed to do for Egypt, it can no longer do for Egypt. It also means that these gods are failing. These gods are being humiliated. As the Lord does this sign of turning the water into blood. This was extreme. Streams, rivers, canals, lakes, any water water that they had gathered up, any water that they dammed up, any water that they had gotten out the day before and put in a jar was all turned to blood. All the water in Egypt 
So when the Nile is struck, it is a total destruction and humiliation of the deities and the evil working, these false gods, no doubt, um, spiritual demonic forces behind it all. Now, the magicians were able to somewhat counter this miracle of, and doing this in their own way. We're not exactly sure how they did it or where they even got the clean water from to do it. But you know what they weren't able to do? Turn the Nile back to water. See, if this is a battle between God and the, the deities of Egypt, God turns the Nile into blood, and what would have been impressive is if the magicians, with the power of their gods, the gods of the Nile behind them, could come and fix what God had just done, but they could not. And for seven days, the Nile is blood. Now, some people will say, well, it wasn't literal blood. That what God did is he caused the Nile to dry up to the point that the, the riverbed, which was a red colored uh, bedrock and sand and stuff, that it would have all got turned up in the water and the water would have looked red. That's understandable, but it would not explain all the water that Egypt had already gathered up. How did that turn red? I think it's best to understand this at face value. To take it to be that the water was turned into blood. And as catastrophic as this would have been, Pharaoh remained hard. And he would not let Israel go. So that's why we come to sign in wonder number two, the incursion of frogs. Moses warns Pharaoh of the next sign in wonder and that it would be a result of his hard heart that the Lord would cause frogs to come bursting forth from the Nile. Now, let me say something about frogs. Frogs in and of themselves, you may think they're gross. You may not like them, but they're not dangerous in and of themselves. If you saw a frog on the sidewalk, you would not jump and run away from it and scream and yell because somehow it could harm you. If you did, that's irrational. But when you have them everywhere, now that's a little scary. I don't care if you like frogs. That's creepy. And they are everywhere. They are in people's houses, in their bedrooms, in their beds, in their ovens, on their cooking utensils and bowls. They are in their feeding troughs. They are everywhere, even in Pharaoh's court. Can you imagine a child sitting down to have their breakfast and out of the bowl jumps a frog? They're everywhere. The magicians, again, were able to do something similar. We don't exactly know how this comes about, but what they're not able to do is get rid of the frogs. See, when I grew up, I was always impressed with the magicians. Because I was always like, well, that's kind of cool. They could kind of do the water to blood thing. They can kind of do the frog thing. But, but really, that, that text being there for us shouldn't be impressive. 
What it should remind us is they could do some kind of magical trick thing to, to make, you know, turn a little bit of water into blood or, and some frogs come about. But what they're not able to do is counter what God is doing. They can't get rid of the frogs. That's what would have been impressive. That's, if, we're, if we're having a battle of the deities and one says, I'm going to bring frogs everywhere. They're in your bed. They're in your food. I mean, they are everywhere. What would have been impressive is if the gods of the Egyptians said, and we'll get rid of them. They couldn't. This would have humiliated the Egyptian god, Haket. Haket was considered sacred because it was a symbol of fertility. Haket was even... When they drew or they, they, they put statues together of this God, they would, they would either give the whole body being a frog or the head being a frog of this God. It was a symbol of fertility. It's almost as if God says, oh, you like frogs. I'll give you frogs. All of this caused Pharaoh to beg Moses, go to your God and tell him to stop it. Please go to your God and tell him to stop it. Tell him to remove the frogs. And God graciously does. And then Pharaoh reneges on his statement of letting the people go, and he hardens his heart further. So God brings the gnats. The dust becomes gnats. Now, I want to say something here because I don't think they're gnats. I think they're lice. I think they're lice, not gnats. Um, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. The ESV translates it gnats. The Hebrew word could also be translated lice, and the King James Version actually has it as lice. In the first century, we have Jewish historians and Jewish rabbis writing and um, talking about like so Josephus writes for the Romans the Jewish history of these of the people of Israel. He writes it as lice. Um, when rabbis of that day are writing their teachings about these signs and wonders, they write it as lice. I actually think it's probably better to understand this as lice. A parasite. Now here's what Aaron does. Aaron is told by God to hit the ground with his staff. It probably speaks to the fact that when God, when he hits the ground of the staff and the Bible says the dust becomes lice, that what it's probably describing is, it's probably saying there is so much lice in Egypt, it is like dust. They are everywhere. How many of you have ever had a battle with lice, whether it's your kids, your grandkids? Listen, y'all, there ain't nothing like it. In fact, it is so devastating that the magicians of Egypt not only can't replicate the sign, they call the event the finger of God. They say, not only can we not do this, this is from the finger of God. Now, this was humiliating to the magicians. Magicians were not allowed to touch insects or parasites at all. 
And the Bible says these lice are on them. Do you know how humiliating that would be? Do you know that they took baths multiple times a day to clean themselves to make sure they were always clean? The magicians were always clean. They always had to present themselves as pure. And now they have lice all over their body. This was also humiliating to the Egyptian god, the earth god, Geb. He ruled and controlled pestilence. So he was supposed to be the one that protected Egypt from pestilence. And here, the entire nation is filled with lice. Once again, the hard heart of Pharaoh does not let the people go. Brings us to the fourth sign and wonder. Swarm of flies. We do not know what kind of flies these were. They might have been a combination of different kinds of flies. They could even possibly have been mosquitoes. But once again, they are everywhere. Now, most of us, you see a frog, a frog. You know what we hate? We hate flies and mosquitoes, especially being from Texas. There is nothing worse than being outside and just having mosquitoes all over you. Like we hate them so much that we just invent stuff to put on our body just to hope that they stay away. We don't even know if it works. But like grandparents and great grandparents have passed down. No, this is what you need to put on there. Keep those mosquitoes away. But we hate them so much. There's nothing worse than being outside at a picnic and flies just constantly bombarding you. Now imagine not being able to go anywhere without them all over you. Again, devastating. Now here in verse 22 of chapter 8, we're told for the first time that this sign did not affect Israel. I take this to mean, and so do the, the, the people that I have studied that I trust on this, I take this to mean that none of the signs and wonders touch Israel. It's not like the first three harmed Israel and now the fourth time it doesn't. I take this to mean that none of these, and this makes sense because God's not punishing Israel, he's delivering them. It makes sense that none of the signs and wonders would be affecting Israel. And that, like this is just the first time. And God's like, oh, you know what? Those first three times I forgot to not make it touch Israel. Let me do it now on the fourth one. I think this is supposed to let us know that this is what's occurring every single time. That these signs and wonders that God is doing as judgment and signs of his power, it's affecting Egypt, but it's not affecting the people of Israel. This wonder would have humiliated the goddess Ma'at, given that she was um, the god of order and chaos. Now, if these are flies, when we have flies around something, we usually think about kind of a decreation thing, right? Flies are around things that are rotting. Flies are around things that are, that are decomposing. So when, when we think of flies, we think of something like decreation, right? Something falling apart and rotting. And so if this God is the one who's supposed to be the, the, the goddess of, of order and creation and beauty, and now you have this, these flies which represent this decreation, it makes sense that she was the one who was being humiliated because she could not maintain the order of things. Would have also targeted the god Kefir, who was depicted as a flying scarab and is found on monuments in Egypt. So once again, a humiliation of the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh 
does not let the people go. Continues to harden his heart. Continues to rebel against God. So in chapter 9, livestock begin to drop dead. This word livestock probably included all kinds of cattle. Now can you imagine these giant beasts laying everywhere dead? The, The stench that this would have created, the cleanup that this would have taken, it would have been horrendous. The cleanup would have been exhausting. Now, here's what's amazing. The Egyptians actually worshipped livestock. One of their gods, um, named Apis, was depicted as a bull and put in their temples. They actually had a, a bull... Not in statue form. They would actually take a bull, decorate the bull, put it in their temple, and they would go worship the bull and worship this god. They also have gods such as Hathor and Isis who were associated with the livestock. They were about love and beauty and motherhood. Again, that means that these gods who are supposed to be behind love and beauty and motherhood have now failed miserably. The sixth one is interesting because we have something different happen in chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, when these boils arrive. This time, Aaron takes dust or ashes and he throws it into the air when he declares the, the sign and wonder. Now, this is different. We haven't had this happen yet. I mean, he's hit the ground, but now he's throwing ashes up in the air. What's this about? Well, the magicians in Egypt actually believed that throwing ashes up into the air was a sign of their gods blessing them. So think about what Aaron is saying here. He's taking the ashes and he's saying, you think your gods bless you when you throw ashes up into the air? Well, look what happens when we throw the ashes up in the air. And they toss the ashes up in the air and the entire Egyptian country breaks out in festering boils. On their body. Abscesses. Blisters. Your gods are not blessing you at all. The magicians also break out in boils. And could not stand before Moses. And at this point. When it says they could not stand before Moses. This is the last time we read about them. Means they quit. They have now. They, they look at Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, we got nothing, man. I mean, we're supposed to be protecting you and protecting the people. And we, we've gotten the lice and now we've gotten the boils. We're done. We're not going head to head against Moses anymore. We're not coming anymore to, Pharaoh, to, to, to Moses and, and going at it with his God anymore. We're done. We're not going to stand before him anymore. Resistance is through. This would have humiliated the gods as well because Egyptians looked to Amon and Ra and and Thoth and Hemotep and Sekhmet for healing from diseases and ailments. Yet at this point, they are of no help at all. And when we come to the seventh, we have God telling Pharaoh through Moses, you know I could kill you, right? Think about everything I've already brought against you, Pharaoh. I could kill you. You know that, right? 
could take you out right now with a word. Look at what I've already done. And yet you continue to reject what I've told you to do. And the only reason I've kept you alive, Pharaoh, is so that my glory can be seen in all the earth. The only reason why you're not dead is because I want my power seen in your humiliation. That's tough. And then God says, hail's coming. And when it comes, any human being or any cattle, anything living that is in the field is going to die from this hail that falls from the sky. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a terrible hailstorm. Now, most of you live in Texas, so you've been in a hailstorm of some capacity. How many years ago was it, babe, when we, we went through our hailstorm? Five or six years ago? Y'all, I've lived in Texas my whole life. I've never seen anything like this. It, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, hailstones in my hand, and all you could see were the tips of my fingers softball or bigger grapefruit size hell and it pounded so what happened was I went outside and I could see the green coming right and that's when you know like okay here comes some hell and and I'm a Texan so I'm thinking hell's coming and you know it's, it's what happens it's thunderstorms in the spring in Texas so I go inside and I'm, I'm looking out the window waiting for the hell to come and what I thought was a softball falls from the sky and then plants in my ground and, I mean, a divot. And it doesn't bounce off the ground, y'all. It goes into the ground and just sticks there. And I think, oh no. This, this is not going to be pea-sized hell. And y'all, in the, within seconds, it sounded like a hundred people with baseball bats were beating my house. It was the, I'm, I'm keeping calm. You know, my kids, I bring the kids all into the living room because windows begin to break. I mean, holes in the roof. We, when, when the roofers came by, we actually finally got up in the attic and it was like Swiss cheese in my ceiling. Just holes everywhere. Um, this same storm actually went through people's roof and then through the sheetrock and into their living rooms. My kids were freaking out. I was staying real calm. I was staying real brave. And inside I'm thinking, oh my word, this is incredible. I mean, to this day, Eden, when a storm comes, she'll say, is it going to hail, Dad? Because she remembers the, the trauma from that. I had this little Mazda 6. Been driving it for a while. Destroyed. I mean, no, wind, no glass at all, was all broken. I mean, it was just destroyed. Sold it for like 700 bucks. Wasn't worth 700 bucks after that hailstorm. I cannot imagine what this would have been like. I cannot imagine. And not only hail, but fire and lightning, I, I think the fire is probably coming from the lightning. But what's happening is with this storm is everything is catching on fire. I mean, hail is falling from the sky. I don't know if the fire is like, like there's balls of 
fire eyes falling from the sky. Like, I don't know exactly how this is, but everything is getting destroyed. It's good. The Bible says it's going to destroy all vegetation and trees. Everything is just going to be annihilated. Now, they were supposed to have some gods of the atmosphere and the elements. Tefnut and Shu. They did nothing. Pharaoh, this time, gives some false repentance. He actually says words that you would think is, means he's changing his mind. But he doesn't. As soon as God stops the the storm, he hardens his heart and Pharaoh changes his mind once again. Sign and wonder number eight is the covering of locusts in chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. The situation gets darker, literally and figuratively, as a wind from the east brings a swarm of locusts that covers the earth. The scene is horrific. So horrific, in fact, that Pharaoh's servants... Say to Pharaoh, you've got to let these Hebrew people go. Now, servants don't tell Pharaoh what to do. I mean, you you don't ever tell Pharaoh what to do or you're dead. But they realize how horrific this is, that they are willing to say to Pharaoh, we don't know what you're doing. You've got to let these Hebrew people go. We're all dying. Pharaoh himself calls the locusts this death. He said, please ask your God to remove this death. Little did he know a worse death was coming. Pharaoh would not let Israel go. This sign would have humiliated the God of the field, Mean, the God of the crops, Isis, the God of grain, Anubis, and the God, Sinarim, protector from pest. All of these gods failed miserably. And then we come to the last one we'll talk about today. A dense darkness. Chapter 10, 21 through 29. A dense darkness. The Bible says it is a darkness that could be felt. Have you ever been in true, complete darkness? Most of us probably haven't. Uh, Most of us, when we think of darkness, I mean, we still think that after our eyes adjust, we'll be able to see. Well, that's because a little bit of light's coming in. If your eyes can adjust to the darkness, it really ain't dark. Jessica and I went on our 20th wedding anniversary to this underground lava tube. It was basically just lava had uh, an eruption had happened and lava came underground. And so um, you got to actually go down underneath And you had to walk about a mile and a half to get to the furthest point you could go. There was still more, but they blocked it off. We're down there about a mile and a half in this lava tube. And we were told, hey, when you get down, there was no guide or anything. We're just, you know, walking. Um, And I'm not exactly sure why anyone would walk with a sandlin in a lava tube with no guide for, like, just, I'm not the smartest thing in the world. Um, but my wife did it. Uh, and and we, we get down there, and they told us, when you get to the very end, turn your flashlights off. And y'all, you don't want it off for more than about five seconds. 
you could feel the darkness. I mean, it was so dense and palpable, like you could feel this darkness. We flipped it off, and it wasn't off about five seconds, Jessica. That's enough, that's enough. Turn it back on, turn it back on, turn it back on. Because, I mean, you literally, I, you turned them off. I took my hand, and I put it right here. Nothing. There was no light. This happens to Egypt for three days. A darkness you could feel. The Bible says that no one could see one another. This is terrifying. Not only terrifying because of the, the realization of what was happening, but it was terrifying because their sun god, Amun-Ra, this was one of their big ones, gets blotted out for three days. Yet after all of this, Pharaoh's heart stays hard. And he tells Moses, Moses, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And then Moses responds with some very chilling words. He says, as you say, I will not see your face again. Knowing what's coming in the story, those are some chilling words. This wasn't Moses being scared. Like, okay, I won't come back. I won't come back. He was saying to Pharaoh, as you wish, you won't see me again. Now, this brings us all to Jesus. You may be thinking, what? This brings us to Jesus. Yeah, this brings us to Jesus. When Jesus came, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. I have brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. His preaching and teaching was accompanied with great signs and wonders. The healing of blind people, the raising of the dead, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk. I mean, it was water turned to wine. Miraculous signs and wonders accompanied his teaching and preaching. And I stated in our first point a fourfold reason for signs and wonders of God. Number one, I said they point to something greater than themselves. Jesus' signs and wonders were not so people could simply be wowed by the signs and wonders themselves. They were designed to point to something greater than the sign, namely that the kingdom of God had come to earth. These signs and wonders are being done in your presence because God has brought his kingdom to the earth. And that's what you're seeing. Number two, I said they manifest the glory of the Lord. Jesus made it very clear why he came. I have come to glorify my father. Jesus came to glorify the father. And so in every sign and wonder that Jesus did, God the father would be glorified. His glory would be seen. Three. They cause belief in the people of God. The Apostle John writes plainly that Jesus came so that people may have life by faith in him. And number four, I said they reveal a new move of God. 
The ministry of Jesus should have, made, should have been made clear to everybody God was doing a new thing. Everyone who observed it should have known something new is happening and God is doing this thing. Maybe a new exodus has come. A new humanity is being created. A new covenant is being given. Since Jesus was bringing the new exodus, that's what we've talked about this whole time, right? Jesus is bringing a new exodus. Well, then guess what we should expect to see with the new exodus? Signs and wonders. They came with the old one. The signs and the wonders came, pointing to God, doing a brand new thing for Israel. Now Jesus comes with signs and wonders. It is God saying, I'm coming to do a brand new thing for Israel. Hebrews 3.1 tells us that Jesus is worth more, he is worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses is a picture of Jesus. Moses delivers the people out. Jesus delivers the people out. Moses does signs and wonders to, to express this new thing of God. Jesus comes doing greater signs and wonders. Bring the people out. So we should expect to see these great signs and wonders of Jesus when he brought the kingdom of God. This is the greatest thing God's ever done on earth. Of course, his anointed Messiah would be coming with signs and wonders. Throughout this entire series, we have said you should not read the story of Exodus without thinking about Jesus. Spurgeon says there is not a page on, in the Bible that does not scream the name of Jesus. All of these signs and wonders that we just read about, they should all just be pointing to Jesus. Oh, Jesus did signs and wonders because he was, had a greater exodus. He was doing a better new thing, a better covenant. And you know what, today, let me, let, me, let me give you this theological truth that I believe and then give you a warning. I believe we are still in the kingdom of God coming to the earth. I mean, just what Jesus tells us how to pray, right? Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are still in the process of the, of the earth being made in the kingdom of God. He brought it when he came. The conclusion is when he comes back. But we are in the process of the kingdom of God on earth. I believe that the signs and wonders of Jesus are still being done on the earth today. <clears throat> Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to leave, but you will do greater things than what I have done. Now, I believe the signs and wonders could be sick people being healed, um, demons being cast out. The greatest sign and wonder that God does, that the kingdom of God has come and the new exodus has arrived, is that people repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. That is the greatest sign and wonder that God can do on this earth is that people who were dead in their sin, who were slaves to their sin, who were bound in their sin, are freed. That this final exodus is a deliverance for them. That is the greatest sign and wonder. Now, I do not 
believe that the lesser sign and signs and wonders are just done. I mean, if he's still doing the greatest one, he's probably still going to do the lesser ones too. Now, here's the danger. The danger is when we make the sign and wonder the thing. I'm not saying we don't pray for healing, miraculous healing. I'm not saying we don't pray for miraculous moves of God. But here's the, here's the danger I see. The danger I see is that we can get so focused on asking God to do all this stuff that we miss what God is doing. Let me say that again. It can be very dangerous for us to get so caught up in the quote-unquote miraculous signs and wonders as if someone being saved is not the greatest. But we can get so caught up in the miraculous signs and wonders and praying for that and looking for that and wanting that that we miss all of the miraculous things that God is doing for you every single day. Do you know what God does for you every day? We just think somehow they're natural. I breathe. No, God keeps you breathing. Keeps you breathing. God does all of these things for us. So, so here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to sit. Again, the theological point is I believe God still does signs and wonders that accompany his kingdom. I believe that. He is doing that. He does it every single day. It accompanies his kingdom. So the fact that his kingdom is here means the signs and wonders and the salvations and the, the great things that God is doing, he is going to always do for his people. But I don't want us to get so focused on the quote unquote big miraculous things that we miss what God is doing for us. So instead of praying for the great miraculous things all the time, why don't we pray for better spiritual eyes? Why don't we stop and say, God, what I want is a better vision of you. I want to, I want to have better eyes that see what you're doing. Because I'll live my whole, I'll live through a week and not stop and actually see what you've just done in my life. I think that's what we need to pray for. I'm not saying there's not a time to pray for healing. The Bible says clearly we should do that. I'm not saying there's not a, a time for us to pray for, for this, you know, move of God, this manifested move of God where people are wowed by it. I, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that. But what I'm saying is on the daily, on the regular, when it comes to your daily walk with Jesus, what you need to be praying for is not for the quote-unquote sign and wonder, but for spiritual eyes to see what Jesus is doing, to see who Jesus is, to see his kingdom come. Lord, help me see all around me what you're doing. And I'm convinced if we would do that, when we come to church together, there would be such excitement and joy and, and exuberance because we would look and see what God is doing and we almost just couldn't stand it. And it's so easy for us to get focused on the things that we wish God would change that we haven't seen the great things that God is doing. We just got to get our spiritual eyes to see clearer.
God, give me the eyes to see your gospel more deeply. Give me eyes to see, Jesus, what you're doing. Help me see your kingdom come. So the theological truth is, I believe signs and wonders continue on the earth because the kingdom of God is here. And God is doing those every day in varying degrees all over the world. He's doing them every day. Doesn't mean we don't pray for him. But what it means is when it comes to your daily walk with God, your prayers need to be, God, help me see what you're doing. Help me see what you're doing. Help me see you more. Help me see your gospel more. Help me see your kingdom come more. Now, do you see how you can take a story about nine horrific things that happened to people thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago and end up just talking about loving Jesus more? That is exactly what we're supposed to do. Once Jesus comes, everything in the Old Testament is filtered through him. Everything. So let's ask God to help us make everything about him and what he's doing in his kingdom and his gospel.